Hi listeners, it's Carter, here to tell you about an incredible event celebrating the launch of ParCast's first book, Cults. On July 13th, crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together for a night of true crime to remember. And you can be part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and so much more. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. It's a wonderful cause and an evening perfect for any true crime fan. But time is running out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. So don't wait. Sign up at parcast.com slash cults. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussion of sex, murder, domestic abuse, sexual abuse against a child, and child pornography. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. The dilapidated trailer's walls shook as the door slammed shut. Walter Hinton was on his way to work, leaving his buddy Mickey behind. Mickey wasn't alone, though. Walter had a new roommate. Mickey could see why Walter had asked Timothy Whitfield to move in. He was an attractive 30-something with an irresistible charm. The three of them had had fun the night before, drinking and smoking into the small hours. Unfortunately, Walter couldn't stick around, but he left the other two to sleep it off until he got back. However, it wasn't long after they woke up that Tim tossed Mickey a beer. A little hair of the dog to postpone their hangover just a little longer. After that, they continued drinking and smoking for the rest of the day. By the time Walter came home, it seemed like no time had passed, like the party could keep going. But Mickey had to get going. He was just in town for a couple of days and his train left that night. The three piled into Walter's blue Cadillac and swerved over to the station. Mickey bade his buddies farewell and watched them leave. As he waited for his train, he wondered about their relationship. He was glad Mickey had somebody to look after him, especially after everything he'd heard about that serial killer who'd been picking up guys in gay bars lately. But the truth was, Mickey had no idea who he had spent the day with. If he had, he might have begged Walter to leave with him, because despite Timothy's charming smile, danger lurked within. And now that Mickey was out of the way, he was free to claim his next victim. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today we're wrapping up the story of Gary Ray Bowles, the so-called I-95 killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last time, we saw Gary fight back against his violent stepfather and take to the streets at just 14. 
In desperation, he turned to sex work and eventually began to kill his clients. Today, we'll follow Gary's warpath down the East Coast as he transforms into the notorious I-95 killer. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. On May 4th, 1994, workers at a private golf course in Savannah, Georgia, found the body of an elderly man beside a plywood shed. He'd been beaten and desecrated to the point that police had difficulty identifying who it was. But eventually, someone said, that looks like Milton Bradley. Authorities were reluctant to believe it. Milton, a 79-year-old World War II veteran, was looked after and beloved by the whole community. But by the time rookie homicide detective John Best reported to the scene, there was no denying it. Detective Best quickly took in the scene. Savannah was no sleepy backwater town. Murders were hardly unheard of in this area. But although this was his first case as a homicide detective, he could immediately tell that something was different. The oddest thing about the murder was its victim. Milton Bradley wouldn't hurt a fly, and nobody who knew him well could have attacked him with such brutality. With that in mind, Best wondered if it could be a random killing. Then there was the location. The storage shed was deep within the grounds of the country club. Milton's killer must have coldly driven the winding road with calculated, deadly intent. But then, they'd made no effort to cover their tracks or hide the body. 
But there was one more thing about the scene, something that put it in an altogether different category. The killer had grabbed fistfuls of dirt and leaves and shoved them down Milton's throat. There was so much detritus that it spilled out of his mouth and onto the ground. And they had done this after the murder. This displayed a level of thought and cruelty that best thought was unusual if this were a random murder spurred on by spontaneous passion. The killer had stuck around after the brutal crime to complete the picture with a final touch. Detective Best wondered if the detail might be the signature of a serial killer, one who may, even then, be on their way to their next victim. Because the crime scene was within sight of Interstate 95, Detective Best assumed that the murderer must have used that highway to flee either north or south along the East Coast. After he got back to the station, he called other police departments in the area to spread the word. He also asked to be informed if a similar murder occurred. His fellow detectives laughed off his suspicions. Of course, the rookie detective believed his very first murder case was the work of a serial killer. No one could get that unlucky. But Detective Best was more right than anyone guessed. Milton Bradley was actually the third victim in a string of murders that began hundreds of miles away in Daytona Beach, Florida, all committed by 32-year-old Gary Ray Bowles. As Best pondered where Milton's killer might go next, Gary was traveling northwest to Atlanta, replaying the previous night in his head. In the early morning light, the memories flowed past him like cars on the road. It made him smile. As far as we can tell, Gary felt absolutely no guilt about his crimes. They gave him a unique sense of calm, a peacefulness that he'd never felt before. At the same time, he knew he was being pursued. Although he didn't know the details, he figured that someone must be tracking him by now. But all spring, he'd been able to avoid capture simply by rushing from place to place. He knew that the quicker he moved, the harder he'd be to pin down. Unable or unwilling to hold down a steady job, Gary had always been on the move. From an early age, he'd used sex work to keep his unstable life afloat. But it seems that his job was what pushed him over the edge, too. Vanessa's going to take over in the psychology here and throughout this episode. As a reminder, she's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. It's possible that Gary's sex work triggered a traumatic childhood memory, he claimed to have been molested as a child. According to forensic psychiatrist Dr. J. Buzz von Ornsteiner, who studied him extensively, Gary seemed to be resentful toward his sexual relationships with men. Dr. Ornsteiner claimed that this was the source of Gary's rage issues in adulthood. But despite Gary's hostile feelings toward gay men, he still relied on them for money. As soon as Gary arrived in Atlanta, he got to know the local gay community he probably picked up one or two clients over the next handful of days. On May 8th, four days after he'd murdered Milton, he met 47-year-old Alverson Carter Jr. After a short conversation, they left the bar together. What comes next is based mostly on Gary's version of events, so it's important to consider the story with a grain of salt. The two men, still drunk, arrived at Carter's lavish townhouse. Gary, eager to make a buck, was probably hoping to get it over with. But Carter wanted his money's worth. Gary claims that at some point during the evening, Carter got aggressive. Gary was adamant that he only engaged in oral sex. That was it. But according to Gary, that wasn't enough for Carter. That's supposedly when the evening took a turn. 
When Gary rebuffed Carter's attempts to take things further than oral sex, Carter allegedly attempted to overpower him. If that was the case, the older man had no idea how dangerous a move that was. Gary scrambled away from his latest client and ran to the kitchen, where he picked up a butcher's knife. Then he ran it through Carter's heart. Gary usually preferred to beat or strangle his victims. But caught up in the heat of the moment, he continued to stab Carter six more times. Even as Carter bled out on the floor, Gary still wasn't satisfied. He wrapped a towel around the dying man's throat and pulled hard. To hear Gary tell it, this murder was an act of self-defense. But given the level of overkill, that doesn't seem likely. While it's possible that Carter did threaten Gary physically, it's also possible that violence wasn't a factor until Gary picked up that knife. Perhaps he just wanted to kill, but knew he wouldn't be able to incapacitate his much larger victim using brute strength. So a blade was his best option to get it done. Even if he did act in self-defense at first, there's no way he was justified in stabbing Carter so many times. By the time he started choking him, he was acting out of pure rage. Once Carter was finally still, Gary got up and looked at what he had done. He tossed some blankets and pillows on the body, as if he didn't want to see it anymore. After a minute or two, Gary made his escape. He'd just committed his fourth murder, and he knew better than to hang around. Gary locked the door behind him and walked out of the building. In his mind, Carter had tried to control him, just like his stepfather. But as he breathed in the warm night air, he felt calm, peaceful, and free. But no matter how unstoppable Gary felt in that moment, reality must have crashed down on him before long. He had no car, no bus fare, no roof over his head. His only income lately was the cash in his victim's wallets, which ran out almost as soon as he got it. His lifestyle of hitchhiking and sleeping on the streets was beginning to wear him down. Moving quickly from place to place had been what kept him out of reach of the law. But as he got cockier, he might have wondered why he shouldn't just move to more familiar terrain. His exact movements aren't clear, but soon after killing Alverson Carter Jr., maybe the same night, Gary walked to the I-95 highway and stuck out his thumb. He was going back to Florida, where it all began. Coming up. Gary Ray Bowles continues his rampage and lucks into the opportunity of a lifetime. Hi, listeners. It's Carter with some truly exciting news. To commemorate the launch of Colts, Parcast's first book, crime junkies Ashley Flowers and Parcast founder Max Cutler are coming together on July 13th for an in-person and virtual experience you do not want to miss. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature a live Q&A about the book, an exclusive meet and greet, and a discussion on all things true crime. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. It's an amazing organization near and dear to both Ashley and Max, and another great reason to enjoy this wonderful night. And it's just days away, so visit parcast.com slash cults to register today. You can also catch the event virtually on Spotify Live if you are unable to join us in person, 
All attendees will get a signed copy of the book and a night they'll never forget. July 13th is fast approaching, so be sure to join Ashley Flowers and Max Cutler for a very special evening celebrating the release of ParCast's new book, Cults, all for an incredible cause. Register today at ParCast.com slash cults. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In May of 1994, Gary Ray Bowles traveled over 300 miles from Atlanta, Georgia, to the northern border of Florida, not too far from Daytona Beach, where he'd committed his first murder just three short months earlier. The 32-year-old rode a wave of rage and hatred, motivated more by sheer instinct than anything else. Like a hunted animal, he fled to a place he understood. Gary had spent much of his adult life in Florida. He figured that not only would he be safer there, but he knew the underground gay scene like the back of his hand, which meant it would be easier than ever to find victims. As soon as he crossed the border, he made his way to yet another gay bar. Desperate for money, the expert hustler searched for clients and quickly found one. Gary swaggered up to a 37-year-old convenience store owner, Albert Morris. Relying on his good looks and casual charm, Gary tried to seduce Albert as a client. Gary told Albert he was from the D.C. area in town on vacation. He also made sure to mention he was looking for a place to stay temporarily. Albert responded to Gary's advances, but didn't employ him as a sex worker, at least not at first. He had a different task in mind and asked Gary if he could help with some construction and gardening work around his property. In exchange, Albert would let Gary stay under his roof. It wouldn't be the first time Gary swapped his services for shelter. Back in March, his first victim had let Gary move in in exchange for sexual favors. But we don't know if Gary ever performed sex work for Albert. Albert's property needed a lot of work. The roof of his shed was nearly falling down, his grass was overgrown, and he had a herd of goats that needed to be looked after. Gary promised he would take things in hand, but as the days ticked by, Albert noticed that nothing was getting done. One night, after about a week of living together, Albert took Gary out for a few drinks. At a crowded bar, he finally confronted Gary about his lack of progress. Predictably, Gary reacted with rage and punched Albert. Albert didn't back down, and the pair got into a huge altercation. The other patrons in the bar could barely manage to separate the two. One of them, a friend of Albert, told him to let Gary go home with somebody else. But Albert insisted on taking Gary home, refusing to give up on the promise of a free handyman. The pair left the bar together, and from that point on, we only have Gary's word to go by. He claims their fight continued back at the house, escalating when Albert threatened him with a fork. If this did happen the way Gary described, it's certainly possible that it was an empty threat, that Albert meant no real harm. But Gary took it upon himself to finish the fight, as he'd done so many times before. 
quickly grabbing Albert's 12-gauge shotgun, Gary blasted him in the chest with both barrels. Even as Albert lay full of buckshot, Gary picked up a blunt object and beat him about the head. Then he found a rag and shoved it down Albert's throat. We don't know which of the attacks were Albert's official cause of death, but one thing is clear. It was yet another case of overkill. In later interviews, Gary claimed not to remember why he shoved objects down his victims' throats. But forensic psychologist Dr. J. Buzz von Ornsteiner claimed that his methodology was tied directly to his motivations. According to Dr. Ornsteiner, Gary's signature move was a dark reflection on the way he earned his living. Since age 14, male customers had paid handsomely to perform oral sex on him. By attacking their throat in such an aggressive manner, he was symbolically providing them with exactly what was promised, just in an incredibly violent way. Gary had attacked Albert ferociously and without mercy. But much like his last murder, he convinced himself that it was an act of self-defense. So, as he went through Albert's trailer and rummaged through his things, he probably felt no guilt at all. If Gary could no longer rely on Albert for shelter, he could at least grab his wallet and make off with some cash. He searched the home for money and found a wallet, but it wasn't Albert's. The driver's license bore the name Timothy Ronald Whitfield. Luckily for Gary, the wallet also contained Whitfield's birth certificate and social security card. Nobody knows why so many of this man's legal documents were lying in Albert Morris's trailer that day, including Gary, but he probably recognized it as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. With Timothy Whitfield's identity, Gary could escape the police and turn over a new leaf. If he wanted to, he could stop running and find somewhere to settle down, then live the rest of his life in relative peace. But in that critical moment, none of that crossed Gary's mind. He only thought about how, if he played his cards right, a new identity might extend his rampage indefinitely. A day or two after the murder, Gary left Albert's trailer, locking the door behind him. He stole Albert's car, then watched the trailer disappear from the rearview mirror. From there, Gary drove down to the local DMV. He claimed to have lost his driver's license and showed Whitfield's birth certificate and social security card to a clerk. A short time later, he walked out with a Florida state driver's license that bore his picture alongside the name Timothy Ronald Whitfield. About an hour later, he arrived in nearby Jacksonville, where he abandoned Albert's car. He always felt like he'd get caught eventually, but after being on the run for so long, he was considering his options more carefully and decided to settle down for a while. After Gary left, people began to notice Albert's absence. His parents, who co-owned his convenience store, grew concerned when their son didn't show up to work or answer his phone. They went to his trailer to see if he was all right and spotted some blood on the door. What remained of their son lay inside, a bloody rag shoved down his throat. As Major Thomas Reeves of the Nassau County Sheriff's Office investigated the crime, he felt a twinge of recognition. The rag was a highly unusual move, even in a brutal murder like this one. It resembled a crime scene he'd heard about in Savannah, Georgia. Major Reeves recalled the bulletin his department received a couple of days earlier, detailing the murder of Milton Bradley. Detective John Best had asked to be notified if any similar crimes occurred. So on May 25th, Major Reeves called up the rookie detective. Best was amazed by what he heard. It sounded like his hunch was spot on. Not only was Bradley's murder the work of a serial killer, 
But just as he predicted, he traveled down I-95 toward his next target. He agreed to help Nassau County authorities however he could. Local police interviewed Albert's friends and acquaintances who provided a physical description of his new housemate. From their testimony, they even traced Gary to a convenience store where they obtained security camera footage. When they showed it to some of the witnesses, one of Albert's close friends exclaimed, That's him! He killed Al! After comparing notes, Detective Best and Major Reeves noticed that the man on the security footage matched descriptions of the man seen with Milton Bradley just before his murder. Now they were certain they were hunting the same man and that he had crossed state lines. That last part meant they could bring in the FBI to help out. Agent Harold Jones took over the case and put together a profile of the suspect, a charismatic sex worker who met his victims in gay bars. He was often described as amiable and charming. The only people who knew a different side to him were dead. But no matter how much they knew about his character, the only concrete information they had was an alias he sometimes used. Without the killer's real name, there was only so much they could do to bring him to justice. Fortunately, investigators found a clean handprint in Albert's home that didn't match the victim. It did, however, match a name in the crime database, a man who had been in and out of prison a handful of times for assault, robbery, and grand theft. Gary Ray Bowles. As it turned out, their suspect was also wanted for a murder two months prior in Daytona Beach. Though they had his name, Daytona Beach police had lost track of Gary soon after the murder. With Gary confirmed as their suspect, the FBI added him to their most wanted list and put out a special alert that included all his known aliases, his date of birth, social security number, and details about his physical appearance. Due to Gary's history of assuming false identities and hanging around in public places, the FBI knew he'd try to hide in plain sight. To make this as difficult as possible, they distributed pamphlets and wanted posters all along I-95. His face was constantly on TV, along with warnings that he may be anywhere in the country and that he could strike again at any moment. Everything that authorities knew about Gary became public knowledge, including how he seduced victims. Gay bars across the East Coast went on high alert, and many displayed his wanted poster. The looming face of Gary Ray Bowles served as a grim warning against picking up hustlers from out of town. But as much as law enforcement knew about Gary, he still had one thing over them, his secret identity. They had no idea that Gary Ray Bowles was now Timothy Ronald Whitfield. As the FBI searched for him all over the East Coast, Gary remained in Jacksonville, staying in a rooming house for $50 per week. With the gay community aware there was a murderer on the loose, he abandoned sex work for the time being. Instead, he reported to a day labor pool each morning, hoping to secure construction work and make it through another week. The reality of his lifestyle was a stark contrast to his almost superhuman reputation. The mysterious, charismatic, and violent murderer was on the minds of many gay men in North America, elevating him to almost mythical status for some. But for those fearful months, Gary lay low and kept mostly to himself. He found some amusement in the sensational news coverage of his crimes, which included multiple segments on America's Most Wanted. Still, even as Timothy Whitfield, Gary couldn't outrun the police forever. Although he'd shaved his mustache and appeared much older than many of the photos on TV, someone was bound to recognize him sooner or later. And eventually, Gary's landlord recognized his face on TV. 
We don't know whether this landlord shook with fear as he dialed the phone, scared that his own life may be at risk, or if he was hoping for a reward. In any case, he reported his tenant to the police. When Jacksonville PD got an anonymous tip that someone matching Gary's description was living nearby, they set out immediately. According to Gary, police kicked down his door early one morning. As he blinked awake, officers barked questions at him. His resemblance to the man from America's Most Wanted was undeniable. They were sure they'd caught their man. Meanwhile, they tore his room apart, going through his few possessions, searching for some incriminating evidence. But despite the chaotic scene around him, Gary kept his cool and answered their questions. He never let down the guise that he was Timothy Whitfield, an innocent man who just happened to look like a wanted criminal. And all the police found in his apartment were documents that backed up his claim. Officers debated with one another. This guy looked a lot like Gary Bowles without a mustache but his papers were ironclad. Slowly, the frenzied energy that the officers had brought into Gary's room receded. They thought they'd caught their guy, but eventually decided they were wrong. As the police shuffled out of his broken doorway, Gary let out a long sigh. He'd been a hair's breadth from justice, but the police had just let him go. It was the latest in a long string of good luck. He'd probably killed more people than he ever thought possible. He'd achieved nationwide fame and attention, and it seemed the universe was only encouraging him. After the raid, Gary felt bolder than ever, convinced that he was totally in the clear. All he had to do was wait until the heat died a little and he could kill again. So he settled in, kept his head down. Months passed without a whisper from the I-95 killer, and sure enough, people began to forget about him. Then, as the hot Florida summer turned to fall, Gary Ray Bowles set out to trap another victim. He was ready to come out of hiding. Coming up, Gary Ray Bowles continues to evade justice, but seals his fate. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now back to the story. By November 1994, gay communities in the United States were starting to forget about Gary Ray Bowles, the specter-like killer supposedly roaming the East Coast. They removed his wanted poster from bar windows, and his face disappeared from the news. But he remained at large, one of the FBI's most wanted fugitives. And when the time was right, he went back on the prowl. Knowing that he still probably wouldn't be safe visiting any gay bar in America, 32-year-old Gary, going by Timothy Whitfield, headed for the Jacksonville Beach Pier, which had a reputation as a discreet place for gay men to meet up. Looking for either another client or another victim, he turned on the charm and eventually hooked his prey. 42-year-old floral designer Walter Jamel Hinton. 
In her book, Serial Killers Up Closer and Very Personal, author Victoria Redstall suggested the two may have engaged in a sexual transaction that night, though Gary would later deny this. Either way, after a few days, Walter asked his new friend to help him move house. As thanks, Walter allowed Gary to stay with him, but only temporarily. This suited Gary fine, and the pair got along well enough. But then, Gary's true nature reared its ugly head. After about two weeks, Walter invited one of his female friends to stay with the pair in his trailer. Gary, always eager to express his heterosexuality, aggressively flirted with the woman to the point that she became uncomfortable. Walter confronted his house guest, who refused to change his behavior, and that's when Walter told Gary he'd worn out his welcome. Gary probably could have gone back to his rooming house, but instead he wandered the streets, heavily inebriated. Then, on November 13th, he was arrested for public intoxication. Even through his drunken stupor, Gary had the sense to stick to his Timothy Whitfield identity. The arresting officers just threw him in the drunk tank to sleep it off. They didn't so much as check his fingerprints, let alone recognize him as the I-95 killer. The next day, Gary walked free and went straight back to Walter's house. Somehow, the ersatz couple made up and went back to living together. A couple of days later, on November 16th, the duo entertained one of Walter's friends, a man we're calling Mickey. Even when Walter left to go to work, Gary and Mickey stayed home, drinking and smoking throughout the day. When Mickey left later that night, Gary and Walter kept the party going, seemingly in good spirits. Gary's motivations have always been hard to pin down, but he certainly developed a pattern. Both John Roberts and Albert Morris had been roommates with whom he had fraught relationships. And on that dark night in late November, history repeated itself. That night, as Walter lay sleeping, Gary meandered about the front yard. Through a haze of alcohol and marijuana, something caught his attention, a 40-pound cinder block. Curious, he bent down and picked it up. Gary brought the cinder block inside, wading through a massive pile of empty beer cans. He carefully placed the brick on the kitchen table and backed away. Even for a man with experience in construction, the brick was heavy. He needed a moment to catch his breath and took that time to ponder his next move. We can only imagine what went through Gary's head just then. But after a moment, he gathered his strength and lifted the cinder block one last time. Creeping into Walter's bedroom, he held the brick outstretched with both arms. It hung over the man's sleeping head for a second or two. Then he let it fall. The blow didn't immediately kill Hinton, though it did fracture his skull. After that, Walter put up a brief, pointless struggle, which Gary violently subdued, breaking five of his ribs in the process. By that point, Walter couldn't do much but lay on his bed. Instead of finishing him off with the cinder block or his bare hands, Gary looked for something to shove down his throat. He grabbed an armful of toilet paper and a rag from the bathroom, then watched as Walter died of asphyxiation. Once he stopped breathing, Gary covered him with blankets. Unlike most of his previous murders, Gary didn't flee immediately. For some reason, he chose just to hang around the grisly murder scene. He even invited a woman over, and as far as we know, she had no idea there was a dead body in the trailer. 
It's unclear why Gary didn't flee back onto I-95. Perhaps he was tired of running, or he was unwilling to give up the little life Timothy Whitfield had built for himself. Perhaps he thought it was better to live as Tim than as Gary. But after two days, the high from Walter's murder wore off, and Gary's instincts for self-preservation finally kicked in. He decided to leave the scene behind. He swiped Walter's wristwatch and took his car keys for good measure. As he left, he locked all the doors, but forgot to turn the lights out. Jumping into Walter's Cadillac, he disappeared into the bustle of Jacksonville. Days came and went as Walter lay alone in his house. Slowly but surely, people began to notice his disappearance. First, he missed a couple days of work. Then he missed his sister's birthday party. When he didn't show, his sister, Belinda, and her fiancé stopped by to investigate. They noticed that the lights inside the trailer were on, but his car wasn't there. Concerned, Belinda tried the front door and found it locked. As she pounded on the side of the trailer, her fiancé walked around and broke into a rear window. She heard the crash and his footsteps as he walked through the trailer. Then there was silence, and Belinda began to fear the worst. When her fiancé finally opened the door, he tried to push her outside as if he didn't want her to know what was in there. But she pushed past him and saw Walter's body for herself. After that, they called 911, and Detective J.P. Collins of the Duval County Police Department reported to the scene. Detective Collins had done his research. As soon as he noticed the red rag sticking out of Hinton's mouth, he remembered an FBI pamphlet he'd read. This was surely the work of Gary Ray Bowles. But as he gathered evidence, Collins couldn't find anything concrete to link Gary to the scene. He did, however, find another name in the form of a pay stub on the dresser, addressed to Timothy Whitfield. To Detective Collins, Timothy Whitfield was just a name. He had no idea whether he was the killer, but thought that he might have some idea who Walter had been hanging around with recently. Luckily, the pay stub also told the detective exactly where he worked. Sure enough, early the next morning, Timothy Whitfield reported to his labor pool. The police showed up not long after and brought him to the station. Their officers noticed how much he looked like the picture on the FBI wanted posters. But while he did resemble the pictures of Gary Ray Bowles, he appeared older, more haggard. The months had not been kind to the 32-year-old. Detective Collins thought he looked like he'd been sleeping in a car for a few days. He'd been drinking near constantly, abusing drugs, and probably worrying himself sick with stress. The pay stub was enough evidence to arrest him in connection to Walter's murder, and his similarities to the man on the wanted posters made him seem like a safe bet. But Detective Collins had to be sure. He kept quizzing Gary about specific details, trying to catch him in a lie. After a few hours of questioning, he finally found a small inconsistency in Gary's version of events and dug into it, demanding that he tell the truth. According to Collins, Gary's entire demeanor shifted. He leaned forward and said, You want the truth? I'll tell you the truth. I'm Gary Ray Bowles. After that, Gary asked for a pack of cigarettes and confessed to all six murders. It was a confession in the truest sense of the word. As Gary described what he had done, it was like a great weight fell off his shoulders. When he was done, Gary slunk down in his chair and said, I'm glad it's over. He repeated the phrase like a mantra. Soon after, he said it was a good thing he'd been caught because it meant the killing could stop. Gary waited for his trial in Duval County Jail. 
Strategically, authorities only charged him with three of the murders. They figured that if he didn't receive the maximum sentence, they'd try again with the other three. At trial, Gary entered a guilty plea, knowing that he faced the death penalty. In an attempt to mitigate his sentence, he laid bare the tragedies of his early years. He and his defense team described his traumatic childhood, the constant beatings he and his mother suffered, his substance abuse and emotional issues, and growing up too quickly as a result. They claimed that Gary had never received the psychological help he needed. But the excuses didn't help. No amount of childhood trauma could justify such brazen, calculated, cruel murders. By a 10-2 vote, the jury recommended Gary Ray Bowles receive the death penalty. The convicted killer didn't take his sentence lying down. Throughout the next two decades, Gary filed appeal after appeal, even claiming at one point to have a serious learning disability. Whether or not that was the case, none of his appeals made it very far. With nowhere to go and nothing to do but think about his crimes, Gary turned the events of spring and summer 1994 over again and again in his head. Over the years, his story has shifted, never told the same way twice. Most recently, he claimed that his crimes were a form of vigilante justice and that all his victims were pedophiles. For example, he stated that his first victim, John Roberts, had shown him a VHS tape containing child pornography. Police found no such tape. Psychologist Dr. J. Buzz von Ornsteiner believed that this claim was an outright lie. Perhaps Gary hoped that by shifting the narrative, he could justify the crimes in his head. After all, he thought that his first attack against his stepfather was justified by the man's violent abuse. Maybe if he could convince himself that his murders had altruistic motives, he could come to peace with himself. But none of his alternative explanations hold any water. The fact that he tried to blame his victims also indicates that Gary felt little, if any, guilt. Most likely, he was motivated by little more than blind rage, an expression of his extreme trauma. In fact, in an emotional letter read aloud before his execution, he apologized to his mother and to the loved ones of Walter Hinton. Whatever Gary believed in his heart, he didn't think they were even worth that small recognition. On the morning of August 22, 2019, the I-95 killer ate his last meal, bacon, french fries, and three cheeseburgers. For a few tense hours, he waited for the U.S. Supreme Court to decide on his final last-minute appeal. Their negative decision came back late that evening. None of his family members were among the 29 witnesses to his execution. There were, however, some of his victims' family members present. Gary claimed that killing made him feel calm and relaxed. To him, murder was just another drug, a sedative to ease his mind. Whatever peace Gary attained in his life came at the expense of people who took him in and provided for him, whether or not they wanted anything in return. Shortly before 11 o'clock that evening, 57-year-old Gary Ray Bull's body finally went still, and those who knew his victims breathed a sigh of relief. It probably felt like peace for the first time in years.
Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with a new episode. For more information on Gary Ray Bowles, amongst the many sources we used, we found A&E's series, The Killer Speaks, and the book Serial Killers, Up Close and Very Personal, My Death Row Interviews with the Most Dangerous Men on the Planet, by Victoria Redstall, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Eric Standke, edited by Joel Callen, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, and researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Serial Killers stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Carter, here to remind you that a very special evening with crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler is just days away. It's an event celebrating the release of ParCast's first book, Cults, and you can be a part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles on July 13th and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and more. Plus, all ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. This has all the makings of being the true crime event of the year, so don't miss out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. That's parcast.com slash cults to sign up today. <laughs>